0: And I'm Jonathan.
1: <laughs> I don't think I, they would get us mixed up.
0: No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I have a low radio voice.
1: You definitely have a radio voice. Yeah. I have a radio face. Radio face. So, then we, we so make a perfect combination. combination. Totally a good combination. And, you know, I need to start off
0: this conversation with an apology. I didn't get you anything for Christmas.
1: I didn't get you anything for Christmas. But you know you know what I was thinking about this, though? What's that? Does a thought count? Is this what's the thought that counts, right? Socks. socks? I, I'm like, I was. Look, I actually went on to look for those of you that are listening to our show. I, I don't know if I can even say it, but you have an affinity for socks and particularly butt socks. Butt socks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, not, those of us th- in the room are your, like rolling but, our eyes, but
0: on your feet. On your feet. They go on your feet, but they have pictures of various cartoonish butts.
1: And we need to say no more with you, that. Should we just leave it there? No. I was, I, I was seriously going, I need to find him some really cool socks. You
0: know I'd wear them. I know you do. I, I would take the dare if you got me those socks. I know whatever you Whatever you put on them. I know. You know, you're, you're, you could put your face on them.
1: I would never do that. You would not do that. <laughs> I would never do that. Put
0: on my Lisa socks for every time I record
1: Things that will not happen. So maybe next Christmas. Okay, but so was the thought that counts. So yes. Merry, Merry Christmas.
0: I th- I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. And you thought of that. I did, and I I had a dream about Cal. I had that I had lunch with your husband. Oh, I have no. That's it was a good so. Dream? It was good. It was good. Okay, like good. he's he's a decent guy in my in my head.
1: Yeah, I don't know if he is in person. Oh, for sure. So that would that to me that would be a great dream. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. There we go. This
0: is the trash talking that we do, and our 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 our, our lovely guest is just like giving us the eye. Like, what have I done? What have I signed up for?
1: Why am I here? Well, I'm super excited because our next guest, Kelly donnelly Williams, um, is someone that I have been following for a very long time. (laughs) I I've watched her just. Her work, her heart for peacemaking, because we're all about peacemaking. And, you know, at Amplify Peace, we're like, how do we step into those messy places and how do we see people that are not normally seen? Um, how, do we, how do we respond as a peacemaker? Mm-hmm. What does that look mm-hmm. like, right? And just restoring dignity to people, honoring all people, and seeing life through the human lens. Mm. So today I'm really excited to have Kelly with us because um, Kelly was born and raised in Arizona. I love that. I was born and raised in Arizona. She has been an avid reader and a writer since childhood, which has led to her getting a journalism degree in uh, Journalism in degree. Mm-hmm. And I know she has volunteered in West Africa. She's had such a global heart, has spent time among so many different people, groups, and cultures. And um, she returned to school to study public health. And okay. there's so many things I could put and read her resume, but I think we need to hear from her specifically. And so uh, she's also the author of four novels. And I want her to four talk about Four novels? That talk about that later because i love her writing and how she writes and an incredible storyteller so kelly welcome to counterculture i don't know if you still want to be a part of us after all of this i don't know butt socks that's <laughs> no thank, i thank
0: you i for can having. bust them out don't no, don't good. make me do it i'm
2: good thank you okay you're good, I'm good. It's lovely what, to size,
0: what you. size what size what oh, size you nope.
1: wear nope nope not a chance yeah, i know right <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, okay, I'm just going to dive in because our time is limited and there's so much that we want to learn from you on this show because we're all about how do we listen, how do we learn, and then how do we live better? That's kind of what we do um, with, our, with our methodology. Um, so I, you've been in public health and you've served in different capacities in government. You've seen a lot through the, that lens. But I want you to ask, because this is kind of a peacemaking question, why do you think it's dangerous to make public health um, political, which you're seeing so much right now, right?
2: Yes, I think there's we're living in a culture right now where things are either left or right, black or white, et cetera. And when you come when you come down to the human condition, I think a lot of the answers and the compassion lies in the gray, in the in between. And having worked in public health for the better part of twenty years now, I was really dismayed by the way the pandemic hit the United States and the way we responded to it, both are the way um Media and government responded to it and made it this big political issue when fundamentally what it came down to is uh, a virus that could make us very sick. And I think the communication that was rolled out as a result of that, you know, the politics behind who was was leading the communication made more people vulnerable. And I think we had higher deaths as a result. I really am a strong believer— at the local level, at the state level, and also at the national level, that when we are making decisions about the health of our citizenry, it needs to be data-based. It, it should not be based in, um, in, in who, who you're voting for. The system should be above that. and. And really, I feel so strongly about this because at the end of the day, the people who suffer the most are the most vulnerable. They're the mm-hmm. people who don't have power. They're the people who uh, may or may not be voting and may or may not understand the way all these systems work. And so I think we need to rise above that level of uh, of conflict, of of seeing the world black and white, and instead ask, how can we have data and science lead these sorts of conversations to make better decisions for everybody? Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: It was so interesting during that time because – we just saw so much polarization and division, everything divided, mask, no mask. I mean, those of us, you know, in the church world and the faith communities, it was it was so hard because people and you could almost tell people's political side instead of like there's a human factor here. It, we're human beings first and foremost. And so, how do we see each other through that lens, irregardless of the labels or stereotypes or whatever we want to bring to the? And we want to bring our opinions so much to it. But, like you said, the facts, the data, but seeing the human heart and the human condition and asking difficult questions is like what you said. These are the, a lot of the marginalized suffer the most. So, how do we, how do we, how do we make our communities better? So I think one of the easiest ways to make our communities better
2: is to get to know your neighbors. We live in a culture today where people park in their garages, close their garage doors if you, have, if you live in a garage, or uh, gated communities, et cetera. We, we used to have so much more community. So on the weekends, you went to your bowling league. You participated in your Bible study. You spent more time at church, especially today, post-pandemic, or I, I shouldn't even say post-pandemic, but post these last few years. Everything's online. It's even easier to isolate and stay within your home. And the human condition is a social condition. You should not be isolated like that. And so we talk a lot about neighboring as a a form of both living your faith and just trying to make your world better, especially, you know, I live here in the Valley, and in our community, we have a lot of seniors who either lost a partner during the pandemic or, or prior to that. They live alone. And- I am sure that my neighbors think I'm nosy and probably even border on annoying, but I make a point of getting to know their names, mm-hmm. watching if their trash is coming down and going back up, if their mail is getting picked up, if I if I actually physically have eyes on them, because we had a handful of neighbors on our street die from COVID. And mm-hmm. they uh, we had two gentlemen who lived right, right near us um, who died two days apart from each other, and they both lived alone. And I think that we can use that. Uh, memory from the pandemic as a real motivator to get to know the people around you and to check on them. And that doesn't just do good for things like a pandemic. It does things for mental health. It builds a sense of community. And I'm not saying you have to invite people into your home or really overextend yourself. A friendly wa- a wave and just getting to know people is really helpful.
1: Mm. Such great points there. And I think what you're seeing to your point of we do things online, right? So it's the proximity with, with people. And we tend to think, well, I don't it's hard to get back into community, especially in the church world. People are like, it's too easy to sit and watch something online in my pajamas and just be relaxed, and and I don't really need community. But to your point, we need each other in this space, and we need proximity, and we need to be intentional with that, with regaining that community and that sense of neighboring. It's a beautiful way of Mm -hmm. saying it. You know, there's something –
2: there's magic about being around people, Mm -hmm. and we definitely see that in my day job. You know, most of my staff is remote. We try to come into the office at least once once a week, if not twice a week, so we can just be in the same room working on our projects together, because just being in that same room, we can bounce ideas off of each other that we wouldn't have had if we were sitting at our computers at home. And I feel the same way about going to worship. It is easy to stay at home in your sweatpants and watch it online, and likely you're still going to get some of the message. But to actually be in the sanctuary, to be with other people who are uh, worshiping the way you're worshiping, to see, to hear the music live, all of that, it's, I think it's critically important important to the to your own well being and and definitely to be part of the community of the church and or of, of whatever your community looks like. Maybe it's a synagogue, maybe again it's that bowling league, whatever that looks like. I just think building community and feeling like you're a member of something is very important.
0: So this idea of community is really close to my heart and so I, I think every you know every human as as well and every american needs we, we can do better and grow in our our how we engage and, and and create community around us but especially for the poor and vulnerable why is community so specifically hard or necessary for the poor
2: so when i think of the poor i always think of single mothers mm-hmm. who are living probably on a pretty tight budget and trying to figure out how to give their children a better life than they have with limited time, more limited time than anybody else has. And if that means that on Sunday mornings mom gets to sleep in rather than get everybody dressed up and take them to church, I think you can better understand why that may be happening more for that person or that mm-hmm. family. Um But there's all kinds of social determinants of health that show that community is good for your health. Mm -hmm. It's good for your heart. It's good for your brain. It's good for your mental health. There's all kinds of research on that. And so I think we need to figure out ways to make it – to to look past your own street when you're neighboring and think about the other people that you interact with who may not live in your community who you could also be a neighbor to. Mm -hmm. And that may be – volunteering at your local food bank and getting to know the people who are coming in to get food boxes. There's lots of ways that you can do it, but Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter if you live in the wealthiest community or in the poorest community. Community, and again, feeling like you are part of something is critically important to well-being. Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: I I think we tend to say the person is poor because of the choices that they make. And you're saying something a little different than that. You're really saying that that the lack of community, and possibly through no... I mean, even in just your, where you're born or your zip code can often have a huge impact on your ability to find employment. The ability, like, let's just say you have a job interview, you're single mom. What do you do with your kid? Right. You know. Uh, you, so the idea that you oh get another job. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> that's that's not easy.
2: There's some really interesting work going into these things called blue zones that I was recently mm. um, recently learning about, and essentially it's where geography can create barriers that greatly influence life expectancy, Mm -hmm. and some of the research that I was just told about, I did not read it for myself, so I I probably won't get all of these numbers right, but in a nutshell, one of our urban uh, tribal nations, their life expectancy is in the 50s for members. Wow. If you cross a major freeway in the Phoenix metro area and you go into Scottsdale, it jumps by 25 years for average life expectancy. Oh, my goodness. And that is not about that freeway. It is about a wide variety of different access to, uh, to health care, to education, et cetera, um, generational poverty. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. And so I think looking at that with eyes wide open, of, OK, so what can we do? Mm-hmm. What can we do? And frankly, with tribal nations, it's not what we can do. It is how can we walk alongside people
1: and, and partner and be be better neighbors? Mm-hmm. 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 To that point, we talk about you know who is my neighbor. And you were very instrumental and opening my eyes to the Native American communities around us. A lot of times they're not even marked on a map. It's just just says reservation, right? They're not identified as this is the Pima, this is the Gila, these are, these are the Navajo. And they're just like blank space on a map. And so we're not even seeing our neighbors around us. And I know you wrote a novel about that. And you really have informed the work that we do at Amplify Peace um, just with – identifying our neighbor, who's been invisible in our community, how do we learn their narrative historically, how do we see what's happening today, and so I just really appreciate your curiosity, how you've leaned in, and you've written about that, but you were also sharing with me um, recently, I want you to talk about some of these, because um, this is what you're saying, the marginalized, how do we see people, is how we treat people, um, are we seeing the people, and so there, there's so many different groups right now, but you were, your latest novel, If you would just share a little bit of that, because you were sharing with me how that kind of came into fruition. And so I think it was a fascinating story. Can you kind of share that with our listeners? Yes, I would love to. So I I get my inspiration for my novels from public
2: health, Mm. which sounds strange, but it's also about public health and about Arizona. And so through an opportunity at a museum in Tempe several years ago, a handful of years ago, I was able to visit um, the Migrant Quilt Project, which is led by a woman from Tucson. She was out for a hike with a friend. They They stumbled upon a migrant trail in the desert, and there was all of this stuff that people had left behind when crossing the desert and she couldn't she it bothered her and so she started asking more questions and she quickly realized that the Tucson sector which is a, a pretty significant uh, amount of the border that comes into Arizona has one of the highest death rates in the world for crossings because the desert's just brutal and unrelenting and people get lost and there's a whole there's a whole system of smuggling people in and sometimes it goes awry and so there's between you know 300 and 500 people that die every year in that section wow. of the desert and living in Phoenix, those deaths don't even make the news anymore. We right. don't hear about it regularly. It's just something that we've all grown to accept, and it just happens, and we look the other way. She took it upon herself to gather fabric in the desert, start making quilts, and start embroidering all the names of the people who died that year on those quilts. And mm-hmm. it became this collection of quilts, and other quilt guilds got, invite, got involved around the country, et cetera. And it's a touring exhibit now. It's really remarkable. And it bothered me. A lot of the names on the quilts are Juan and Juana doe because they were never identified. And the desert has... Uh, the desert is particularly brutal on human remains. There are mm-hmm. there are um, all kinds of biology that goes into how quickly bodies can decompose in the desert. And, and it makes it very difficult to identify, identify those remains after the fact. So my latest novel is called Desert Divide. It's set in southeastern Arizona. And it is primarily the story of a woman who comes home because her mother has died unexpectedly. She comes home to her family, her family's ranch in uh, the Patagonia community. And while there, she goes out for a walk on her family's land and she finds the body of a young woman who's recently passed away. And mm-hmm. she's, she's trying to figure out who the woman is, why she's there, why she crossed, et cetera. And it's uh, intentionally named Desert Divide because if you've ever spent any time in that part of the state, there are all of these conflicting priorities, uh, water, cattle, mining, ranching, the border, (laughs) immigration, faith, Mm -hmm. they all play a major part. And so I try to bring all of those together in the story and talk a little bit about who's crossing, what happens when things go wrong and how we can open our eyes to those
1: folks. Mm. I I know you did a lot of research talking to a lot of different people and then you put a story to it. What did you discover in your research that really was like wow. Because I know so many things. I love, you know, you're leaning in with curiosity. And a lot of the work we do is like, you get disrupted when you start learning the Mm -hmm. facts and the realities. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't, you know, unsee what I've just seen or, you know, or pretend I didn't, I don't hear that. So what, what kind of stood out to you in your research and in the process of researching?
2: One of the most interesting things that really changed my heart in writing this book was I went into it with an idea of who border patrol officers are. And I had in my mind this very stereotypical previous military person who loves uniforms and guns and feeling important. And what I learned is that Border Patrol officers across the border, across the southern border with Mexico, not just in Arizona, often pool their own money to put water stations out in the desert and to build beacons. So when people get lost, if they can see the beacon, they can touch it and people can respond to them faster. They're doing that out of their own pockets. I had the stereotype completely wrong. There are there are great people and there are not so great people in any profession. And what I would say with the Border Patrol that um, I got to learn about, especially in that area, they're doing some incredible humanitarian work quietly because it is outside of their day job, but they are tired of finding dead bodies too. They want people, they don't necessarily want people to cross illegally, but they don't want to continue to have to return remains to family members.
1: Mm. Mm. And I know you've talked to, like, ranchers, right? And you talked to some people that successfully have, have migrated. Yes. What did you learn from their stories? Because I'm sure they're two different stories. And part of this, you know, what we do in peacemaking is how do we hold two different narratives to the, to the same story and learn from both, right?
2: Right. I think, uh, I think one of the, the things that I always try to remember is that nobody is crossing that desert unless they're being chased by something that's scarier. Mm. They are trying. Nobody is going to put themselves or their children or their spouse or their parents uh, in the heat of that desert or even just in the winter months. The the arduous journey that that is to cross something even worse is behind them that they're trying to get away from. And. Um, and as far as the ranchers go, you know, it's, I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong to the story. I think it makes perfect sense. If your family has ranched for generations on the border, you don't want people crossing your land. You don't want the, the debris that gets left behind, et cetera. Um, so I think it's just a, it's balancing all of those perspectives. And again, it's that work in the gray. It's, you know, it, it's being able to say, just tell me more. I just want to know. I, I, I want to understand your perspective. And I, I'm not going to tell you I think you're wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to say, uh listen to all the interesting things that you just taught me that I could not have possibly
1: imagined on my own. Wow, well, you have written from like you said from that place of public health and Arizona and taking different narratives you did you know Native American. you've done this um and so in that in that um vein of neighboring and communities, what have because you've got, you've kind of researched and think some of the marginalized you know communities in in our state and in our city. What have you learned from that, that in the, in the realm of neighboring and community, for, on the whole, holistically?
2: That I think, I think we're hesitant or maybe even shy to build new relationships or to get involved, especially when we're talking to vulnerable people. But everybody has a story, and no story is the same it's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, veterans are homeless for this reason. Vietnam went wrong. Or foster children who age out of the system are going to be homeless for this reason. And, um, and the truth is there's probably some threads through both of those stories that are true. But there's a lot more nuance there. And speaking of the unsheltered population in particular, each of those individuals is looking for a way to survive and to connect and they're going to ultimately feel better about their their life if they know someone cares for them. And so one of the things that we're working on in my in my day job, which is not writing, um, working in homelessness, is making sure you see your neighbor. So we, we've become accustomed as a culture to drive up to a corner, and if you see somebody panhandling, not even to make eye contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you hand them a bottle of water, or maybe you just pretend like they're not there. And it's... You know, it, it's free to roll down your window and say hello and just wish them well. And that connection is really important for both,
1: both parties. That is such a great reminder because I think we all have that angst because you want to do something. You're not really, you know, if I give eye contact, am I committed, right? And, and you're generally going through the intersection or you're, you're on your way or you're, you're on a mission mode, right? But taking time to see the humanness to people. Like you said, just saying hi and smiling is restoring dignity, in exactly huge ways, right. and it's simple, yeah. right? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, okay, okay, so these stories of of Arizona that have, if and and as you've learned this and you brought up this point, homelessness because it affects all of this stuff. We're in a crisis right now in our state with homelessness, and like you just pointed out earlier, we all have can come up with opinions of why we think somebody's homeless. What do you want in those last few minutes, um, people, to understand about homelessness? And before we judge people.
2: Oh, sure. I, I, because, I mean, my goodness, uh, any of us could be homeless tomorrow, mm-hmm. especially with, um, you know, they say that most, most people are one car accident or one medical crisis away from being homeless. So uh, I don't think there's any place for judgment. You know, we have, uh, we have a lot of families living in their cars right now because mm-hmm. something went wrong because uh, a parent lost a job or there was a medical issue or something like that, and they're just trying to keep their family together, and they're just trying to survive. We have a lot of uh, individuals who have moved here from other states and don't have any local resources. And, again, something goes wrong that was out of their control. It's, it's easy to try to paint a picture that these are all folks who are substance-using or these are all folks who are lazy and don't want to work or they're, they're just looking for a handout. I, that has not been my experience in working with the unsheltered population. I think everyone has a story, and they deserve to um, to be on our hearts and and to not just get lumped into a stereotype again. So I would just I would say if you're looking to connect with unsheltered individuals, there's a lot of great programs across the, across the state and also across the city where um, you could come in and volunteer. You could read to children. You could help kids with their homework. You could uh, cook a meal, etc. So mm um these are just folks who are in a in a one of the most crisis filled times of their life and they're looking for connection to get
1: to the next spot and for somebody to see them right and recognize them right absolutely yes so as we close this can you just share it? somebody's listening right now they're like i didn't know all this stuff you're challenged me to think differently to see people differently certain people groups differently how can they reach you and learn more, and how can they find your books? Sure. That's wonderful. <laughs>
2: so uh, my books are available on all the major online retailers. Um, if you want to connect, the easiest way is probably my website, which is Kellydonley.com. or I'm on Twitter at Arizona Kelly, and I'm happy to connect with folks. Um, my books are also in libraries. I'm a big proponent of libraries, so you don't have to buy them. Go to your local library, and
1: uh, I appreciate the support any way it comes. Mm, so appreciate your heart and your time to join us today.
0: Absolutely. This has been awesome. I love the discussion. I love your heart more than all. I'm just behind everything that you're, you're doing. And so thank you for taking the time. And I know our listeners appreciate it too. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Counterculture is made possible by Amplify Peace, educating, immersing, training, and launching peacemakers to build united communities.